Thanks, guy. All right, there we go. All right. Superheroes are big in our culture right now. Who knows what this is? Black Panther. Okay, that's a pretty good movie, too. They've been, superheroes have been big. We, have, we couldn't find Pastor Hink's mic this morning, so I'm having to do this. So hopefully you can still hear me. Okay. Black Panther is number one for three weeks in a row now, I believe. And recently, Wonder Woman was huge, too. There's a whole bunch of Marvel superheroes, of which that's just a smidgen. And there's even a whole family of superheroes called The Incredibles, and I think they're coming out with a sequel pretty soon. So why do we love our superheroes? Anybody? They're strong? They do things we cannot do. That's good. Yeah? I think there's... Two main reasons that we really like our superheroes, and that is they can use their superpowers to defeat what would be undefeatable for us, for regular people, and they give us hope in goodness that it will win out over evil in the end. It appeals to our yearning for more. We know somehow that there's an ideal out there, even if we don't see it, and they appeal to that for paradise, if you will. But superheroes that we create from our imaginations, they're not real. Sorry, they're not real. The fact that we create so many of them, though, shows us just how deep that yearning is within us for something more like that. I think Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us why. Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. Even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. What this says to me is that even though we cannot see everything that God is doing from the beginning or what's going to come in the future, he has planted eternity in our hearts. We know, even if we don't believe in God, every human being knows there's something more than us. There's something more than what we can see, even if we're not sure we want to admit it. There's something more out there, and that is um, what God has planted there. Our present sermon series is Unexpected Jesus, uh, where we're getting to know Jesus and seeing him with fresh eyes, maybe in ways we hadn't looked at before. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Hink talked about the humanity of Jesus and why we really do need a human Jesus. And today we will look at Jesus' divinity shining through his humanity as we consider the miracles that he did. They give us glimpses of glory. And so that's kind of my sermon title that I didn't make in time for Karen in the bulletin, so sorry. But anyway, uh, give us glimpses of glory, glimpses of Jesus at work as God, letting us peek behind the curtain of his humanity and see what things would be like in a perfect world or heaven. A miracle is defined as an extraordinary and welcome event that is not explicable by nature or scientific laws and is therefore attributed to a divine agency. Now, that's dictionary speak for something that is really extraordinary and welcome, not unwelcome, that we cannot explain by natural laws, by physics, by science, and so we say it must be God. Okay? Um, But some people are not sure that the miracles that we read in the Gospels are real. Were people in ancient times just easily duped into believing in miracles? C.S. Lewis calls that chronological snobbery. 
Chronological snobbery is an argument that the thinking, art, or science of an earlier time is inherently inferior to that of the present simply because it happened in the past. Okay? You gotta think though, people back then are ju were just as surely as people do today. They, d they knew dead people don't come back to life. They knew women don't have babies unless they've had sex with men. They knew that water doesn't become wine, that you can't feed thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread, that storms don't stop just because you tell them to, and that people don't walk on water. Nobody in Jesus' day would have been amazed at his miracles if they didn't think that they didn't just happen any old time you wanted them to. So we need to give them some credit that they knew that this was not something that normally happen, that normally happens. I want to move around and I can't. Okay. Uh, so another question is, was Jesus just a good teacher, but he didn't really do miracles? Are the miracles just stories his fellow followers made up to give him more credence? Thomas Jefferson thought so. In 1820, he put together his own biography of Jesus by using a razor blade to cut out Jesus' teachings and the narratives that did not include any miracles or anything that smacked of the supernatural. Okay? These are some of the Bibles that he cut up. These are in the Smithsonian, I believe. He then glued them into a separate book, and that is his own hand there on the cover, that he put together himself. He used this as his Bible during the latter part of his life. He believed that anything miraculous or supernatural was just made up. But the problem with that kind of thinking is that if you reject the miracles of Jesus, the rest of the Gospels just fall apart. The miracles are what people, got people's attention that God was at work in ways that the Pharisees and the other Jewish leaders could not refute. Yes, Jesus had great teaching, but he would not have attracted the crowds he did had they not heard of his miracles. Tens of thousands of people are not going to show up just to listen to a sermon. Peter realized that the things Jesus did could very well sound like fairy tales, for he wrote, For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. Another reason we can be sure that the Gospels accurately recorded Jesus' miracles is that three of the four of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written within 40 to 50 years of his death. People who had been around him were still alive, and an awful lot of those people were hostile to him. If the Gospel writers had exaggerated what Jesus did, there were plenty of people who would have been very eager to jump up and say, hey, I was there and that did not happen. But we have no record of anyone ever doing that. What we do have are accounts of people trying to explain away the miracles Jesus did or cover them up, but they didn't outright deny that they happened because there were too many other people around who said, I was there and he did do that. In Acts 26, Paul is giving testimony before the Roman authority Festus and the Jewish ruler Herod Agrippa. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem had denounced him to the Roman authorities and tried to kill him. Festus didn't really know what to do with Paul, and when Agrippa came to visit him, Festus pounced on that as an opportunity to have him hear Paul out and help him figure out what to do with him. 
So Paul was hauled out in chains to appear before them, and as he was giving his defense, he told about what had happened to him on the road to Damascus and how his life had changed, all the things preaching he had done, and he also talked about Jesus rising from the dead. And I'm reading from Acts 26 here. At this point in Paul's defense, Festus declared with a loud voice, You've lost your mind, Paul! Your much learning is driving, too much learning is driving you mad. But Paul replied, I'm not mad, most honorable Festus. I am speaking what is sound and true. Sorry. King Agrippa knows about these things, and I have been speaking openly to him. I'm certain that none of these things have escaped his attention. This didn't happen secretly or in some out-of-the-way place. It is significant that Agrippa did not deny that the miracles happened, though he did sneer back at Paul. Oh, so you think you can so quickly convince me to become a Christian? Just a few verses later, after they've taken Paul back to his cell, Agrippa tells Festus that Paul has done nothing wrong and the Jewish leaders have no case against him. If the Jewish leaders or Agrippa could have proven that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead or that any of the other miraculous things that Paul had talked about had not taken place, they would most certainly have done so. Other, other people point out that Jesus wasn't the only guy around doing, mag, doing magic back then, and they are right, believe it or not. There were many magicians in Jesus' day. They performed miracles that appeared to be miracles, actually, through illusion or demonic power. But Jesus was different in two ways. In the way he did miracles. Without magic spells or smoke and mirrors, he didn't stand off by himself to perform an an illusion so it would look like a miracle. He didn't chant a spell. He just did them. The sheer volume of miracles is the second way. No other miracle worker, and we do have historical records of miracle workers in that time period, no other one recorded in antiquity ever came close to the number of miracles that Jesus did. So we can be sure that Jesus did indeed do true miracles. Why is that important? Well, it's not for Jesus to be a magic maker who will dispense miracles on demand. Okay? And it's not the main thing about him. Miracles are just one piece of the whole of what Jesus is and came to do. Jesus' miracles are signs. Okay? Signs give us important information. That's why they're useful. Jesus' signs did three things, I think. First, they fulfilled prophecy. Oops, sorry. First, they fulfilled prophecy. And here's some examples. Healing the blind, deaf, mute, and lame is prophesied in Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. When John the Baptist was thrown into prison that he would never leave alive, he got very discouraged, despondent, depressed, and he sent his disciples, to Jesus to ask him, are you really the Messiah, or should we wait for someone else? The way Jesus answered him was, you go back and you tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and the mute speak. Blessed is he who doesn't fall away on account of me. So in order to answer John's question, am I really the Messiah, he pointed to this fulfillment of prophecy. Another thing that is in there is feeding large numbers of people with just a little bread repeats Elisha's miracle on a larger scale. You can find this in 2 Kings 4, 42 and 44. It's really kind of amazing. Like, wait a minute, Jesus is going to do that, except much bigger. And then it also harkens back to God giving manna to the Israelites in the wilderness. 
Also, believe it or not, stilling the storm on the sea can be seen in Psalm 107, 25 through 30. The second thing that Jesus' miracles do as signs are that they affirm faith. They show us that we're on the right road. Um, When I was a teenager, uh, newly driving, I had to take my dad to a glaucoma specialist, and he couldn't see very well because he had medicine in his eyes, and so I had to do the driving. And we lived in Des Moines, Iowa, which is at the crux of two main interstates, one going north and south and one going east and west. I was supposed to go east for about an hour, and I went north for about an hour uh, because I wasn't paying attention to the road signs, (laughs) and Dad couldn't see them. And about an hour into it, he said, shouldn't we be there by now? And that's when we figured out we were on the wrong road. Um, He didn't make his specialist appointment on time, but we did get there. Anyway, now I know the importance of reading the road signs and making sure that I'm on the right road. And I think that's what the miracles did. Notice that we say, though, that these miracles do not cause faith. Jesus never did miracles on demand by, by those telling him to prove something. Wouldn't that be neat, though? Wouldn't it be neat if we could just walk on water to prove to a friend that God really exists? Ooh, that would be so much fun. But uh, God doesn't work that way, even for a seemingly important reason of convincing an atheist friend that God is real. He doesn't do that. Why do you think he doesn't do that? It wouldn't be faith. I don't think it would convince them. Because seeing is not necessarily believing. If a person is not ready to believe, then doing a miracle even right in front of them will not convince them. Okay? Rather, they will go to great lengths to explain it away or deny that they saw what they saw. This is not just because we live in the scientific age today. No, this happened way back when in Jesus' day too. When Jesus rose from the dead, for example, the Jewish leaders didn't say, oh, oh, our bad, he must have been the Messiah after all. No, no, what they did was they tried to cover it up. And then they threatened his disciples, stop telling people Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't deny it happened, they knew it happened. But it did not cause them to have faith. So that's why we say that it doesn't cause faith. Philip Yancey, in the book, The Jesus I Never Knew, wrote, and I can't read that, so I'm going to have to read it from here. As a child, I saw the miracles as absolute proofs of Jesus' claims. In the Gospels, however, miracles never offered such certitude, even to those who saw the wonders in person. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, and by Moses and the prophets he meant scripture, the Bible, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead, Jesus said of skeptics. In no event did the miracles bowl people over and steamroller them into belief. Otherwise, there would be no room for faith. As somebody said over there. It's pretty cool. They are glimpses of glory, signs of what is to come, a taste of what will be true later, a movie trailer for heaven. That's kind of the way I look at it. So let's look at some representative miracles and see what we can learn from them. I took a poll of friends and family on Facebook asking people, which of Jesus' miracles is your favorite and why? 
I did this on several different pages, so even if you saw one, you might not have seen the responses on the other. The miracles that got mentioned more than any other were his healing miracles. Healing miracles were a fulfillment of prophecy, but they also affirmed faith. I'm going to use some examples for just a few of them. Jesus healed a lot of blind people, but he didn't always use the same method to do so. For some, he touched their eyes. For others, he just said, be healed. For another, he spat on the ground and made mud and put the mud on the man's eyes and told him to go wash it off in the pool of Siloam. And for yet another man, he put spit directly into the man's eyes. Sounds a little gross to me, but okay. This one is strange because this miracle didn't heal him completely all at once. The man went from total blindness to having very blurry vision. He said it was people were like trees walking around. Now, I'm going to tell you, I am virtually blind without my glasses. I can relate to that. You guys now look like stumps or something. Uh, blurry stumps? I would not be able to recognize you from here at all. So I can, I can relate to this guy at that point. Then Jesus touched his eyes, and he was able to see clearly. Why would Jesus do things differently like that? I think it was so we and his followers wouldn't get hung up on the method. No, 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 no. Jesus has to heal by making mud. No, no, no. He's powerful just to say it. We wouldn't get hung up on the method, but we would focus on the results. He also taught us through this last miracle that I mentioned that sometimes healing isn't immediate, but sometimes it's gradual or in stages. Jesus also healed more than people's bodies. He healed their souls. Remember, remember my poll that I took? The one miracle that got cited as people's favorites the most by far was the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. Now, maybe that was because more women answered my poll than men did, but that one was the one that had tons of responses. It's easy to miss just how radical that, that miracle was, though. Because of her constant blood flow, she was perpetually unclean, much like a leper. That means that by Mosaic law, she could not go to the temple or to synagogue. Women, if we lived by that law, when you were on your period, you couldn't come to church. Okay, That's the way it was. That's the way Mosaic law was. By Jesus' day, the Pharisees had added a bunch of other rules and regulations to this idea of being unclean that weren't in the Old Testament, but they made them up and was still this woman's reality. And these extra rules meant that this poor woman had no social life. Anyone or anything she touched would also become unclean for a whole day, which is very inconvenient for them. Nobody could visit her in her house because any chair or bed she sat or lay on became unclean. Any food she prepared would be unclean. She could not enter anyone else's house, or whatever she touched would become unclean. If she had been married, her husband would have divorced her long ago, and any friendships she had 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 long since died. Can you imagine? Now, the text says that she had this condition for 12 years. Can you imagine living that way for 12 years? This is why she was sneaky. She bent over, probably put the shawl over her head so people couldn't recognize her, because if anyone had recognized her, they would never have let her get that close to Jesus or them. She also knew that to touch Jesus would make him unclean, she thought, and she, he was on his way to heal a little girl. Now, she didn't want to 
keep him from being able to do that because if she were to touch him and he were to become unclean, it would take a whole day for him to be able to be clean again and then go help the little girl. So she reasoned, if nobody else sees me touch him and all I do is touch the hem of his robe, then I will be healed, everything will be fine, and nobody will know. All right? But what she didn't know is that Jesus knew. And I don't think Jesus called around and made her come out and admit what she did did because he was being mean. He wanted to heal her soul. He wanted her to know, no, you cannot make me unclean. And your faith has healed you. She was expecting a tongue lashing when she admitted what she did. And instead, she got love and acceptance and bringing back into the community. This is why also I think that Jesus talked about when he, whenever he healed lepers, he would touch them. I read a story of a doctor who worked with um, lepers in India, I think it was. And he was working through an interpreter. And there was this one man that he, he was working with. And he put his hand on, on the man's shoulder. And the man burst into tears. And through his interpreter, he goes, wait, did I hurt him? Did I do something wrong? What was the problem? And the interpreter you know, worked with the guy and said, no, he's sobbing because... You're the first person who has touched him in years. I think Jesus reached out and touched the lepers because he was not just healing their bodies, he was healing their souls and healing them emotionally as well. Um, Some comments from my online poll I'd like to read. This one is... uh, why it was their favorite. She risked her life, an unclean woman touching other people to get near Jesus. She expected so much from so little. If I can just touch one of the tassels on his garment, I will be healed. She had incredible faith in this teacher still, after having tried everything out there for many years. It's easy to give up and die or quit hoping. And Jesus gave her inclusion into the people of God that had never been offered to women before, calling her daughter of Abraham the first known usage of anything but son of Abraham in writing. That was a friend of mine named Wendy. Uh, Another woman named Mariah wrote, I don't know why this is my favorite miracle. Just something about the fact that all she was able to reach of Jesus was his robe always makes me sob. So many times I've been there trying to find Jesus, but all the Pharisees and mobs and crowd get in the way, and I feel so desperate. Some of my most powerful spiritual moments have been me going, I just need to touch you and I would be healed. And somehow, I always find his robe between the feet of those who tread on me. I can't always see Jesus' face, but I can find the edge of his robe. Nobody would touch this woman, and yet Jesus did. Another thing that Jesus' miracles, another category, is sovereignty over nature. This is the next category of miracles that seem to be people's favorite. After the healing miracles, it was the sovereignty over nature ones. Pretty much, mostly, it was the calming of the storm, followed by the walking on the water. Some people mixed those together. Um, This was an amazing miracle, too. As his disciples exclaimed, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Keep in mind, this is after they've watched him feed thousands of people with two two fishes and five loaves of bread. This is after they've seen him heal lepers and blind people. They still are amazed that even the wind and the sea obey him. This type of miracle teaches us that Jesus has power over all creation. Indeed, he is the creator. 
Francis Collins, who is a really super smart guy, scientist and everything, he's the one that that discovered the human genome, headed up the Human Genome Project. He used to be an atheist, but through his study of human DNA and things like that, he said there has to be a God. And so he, he is a Christian now. And he said, if you are willing to answer yes to a God outside of nature, then there's nothing inconsistent with God on rare occasions choosing to invade the natural world in a way that appears miraculous. Another category of Jesus' miracles are affirmation of faith. Now, to be fair, pretty much all of Jesus' miracles are an affirmation of faith, but I'm going to put the turning water into wine in this one because this is the third. The third most popular miracle in my poll was turning the water into wine. Now, at first we may wonder, why did Jesus do that? After all, he didn't have to do it. Uh, Sure, it was embarrassing for the host to run out of wine, but that hardly seems to justify a miracle. The Gospel of John states that this was Jesus' very first miracle, and he calls it actually not a miracle but a sign. But hardly anybody knew about it. His mother, the servants who filled the, the water jugs, and his disciples. That's pretty much it. There's no indication in the text that any of the, the guests or the host or even anybody knew what Jesus had done. Now, the text says, well, I'm going back up. Who was it? If it was a sign, then who was it a sign for? And I believe it was a sign for his first disciples. The text says that after his disciples saw him turn water into wine, they put their faith in him. Now, I don't think that means this miracle caused faith, because that doesn't really happen. But they must have already had some faith in order just to start following him. So what I think is this means it grew their faith and it strengthened it. It affirmed their faith. Because remember, this was at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He had just called his first disciples. I don't think he had had the full 12 of them yet. Anyway, they had enough faith to start following him based on what little teaching they've heard, but they might have been wondering. After all, some of these guys used to be John the Baptist's disciples, and he lived out in the desert and ate locusts. He did not go to parties and drink alcohol. Life with John was hard. Now they start to follow Jesus, and the first thing he does is take them to a wedding feast with lots of alcohol and celebration? Hmm, are we sure about this? Then Jesus turns water into wine. This is one of those road signs that tell you that, yes, you're on the right road. Keep going in this direction. Now, of course, not very many people knew about it back then, but millions of people know about that miracle now because it's in our Bibles. Now we can learn additional things from it. When I took my poll online, here are some quotes from two friends who had what I thought were kind of insightful about this particular miracle. It was creative, helpful, quality control. Seems trivial. He was reluctant. Asked that it be kept on the down low. Showed ability to delegate tasks. Healing, oh wait a minute, made other people look good. Enforces the culture of good host, good guest hospitality. Healing is great, but we die later anyway. Of course, I love all the healing and and feeding and deliverance, but wine, so unnecessary, but also revealing. This is my blood, but also living water. It was by a woman named Jen, and someone named S.J. wrote, Often I think the dire situations of other people healed is almost used as a measure for when God intervenes, which isn't fair for the people who are left wondering why they aren't being healed or why their faith isn't enough. No one was faithing that wine into existence. I think it really shows the kind of agitating aspect to the way Jesus did miracles. They were subversive to the social norm. 
thought that was kind of neat. Another category is his provision. Feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle to make it into all four Gospels. So it must have been pretty popular back then. There were actually more than 5,000 people there. That's why I have a plus sign there. Uh, Because the text says that there were 5,000 men, and the word in the Greek is specifically men. So that means that there were only 5,000 men, but there were also more women and children. So there were more than 5,000 people there that day, maybe as many as 15,000, 20,000, if you think people came in families with wives and kids and stuff like that. But So there were actually a lot more people there than the text says. In any case, Jesus performed that miracle because the people were hungry, and it was too late for them to go into town and buy food. Jesus took what was available, the lunch of a little boy, five small loaves of bread, probably no bigger than my hand, and two small fish, and multiplied that to feed tens of thousands of people, 15,000, 20,000 people. This miracle shows us that Jesus cares about our physical needs. But it also, if you keep reading, shows us that he still rates our spiritual needs more important than our physical ones. If you look in, I believe it's Mark's gospel and John's, not all four of them do this, they tell you the rest of the story. The next day, Jesus tried to leave to go to another place to preach, and the same crowd followed him. And one of the accounts even gets on a boat and tries to escape them through the across the Sea of Galilee, and they run around and catch him on the other side. It's, it's like a chase scene almost. But they follow him, and, uh, because Je- and then Jesus says, you're only following me because I fed you bread yesterday. And they don't deny it. In fact, they say, yes, feed us bread every day, like Moses did in the wilderness. And Jesus says, uh, no, not going to do that. I am the living bread, though. If you want to follow me and listen to me, and I will be your spiritual bread, bread of life, but I'm not going to give you more physical bread. And when he said that, when the crowds realized that he wasn't going to give them any more bread, most of them left. This is another reason we can see that you know, just doing a miracle, seeing a miracle done, experiencing a miracle does not necessarily cause faith. Because if it did, then every single one of those people who had eaten that miraculously provided bread would have not left him. Then there are what I call the head scratchers. There are also miracles that don't seem to make sense, especially at first. A prime example of this is when Jesus cursed a fig tree. How many of you have heard that story? Do I need to tell it? Not very many people. Okay. Jesus cursed a fig tree, and it shriveled up and died. This account is in Mark 11. It's also told in Matthew, but I like the way Mark tells it better. Um, The text says that Jesus was hungry. It's in the morning, and he saw a fig tree that had a lot of leaves. But when he went to find figs, There weren't any. So he cursed the tree. What's more, the text says, it was not the season for figs. Um, Jesus, why would you curse a poor tree for not having figs when it wasn't the season, the right time for the tree for have figs? That doesn't sound very fair. Were you just extra grumpy that morning? To get a clue as to what was really going on, We need to consider the whole picture and learn a few things about fig trees. The cursing of the fig tree, in Mark especially, frames the temple clearing. Now, when I say temple clearing, that means that's when Jesus went to the temple, made whips out of, like, 
things he saw lying around and threw tables over and started whipping people, driving out the money changers and all these people selling animals and stuff and really made a mess. Okay, that's the temple clerk. Now, when Jesus cleared the temple, he didn't just snap and lose his temper and go crazy, even though it looked like it. Mark makes it clear that he first went to the temple in the evening the day before, looked around at everything that was going on there, and then because it was already evening, decided he would wait till the next day to deal with it. He left, walked the two miles to Bethany, where his friends Lazarus, Martha, and Mary lived, so he and his disciples could spend the night there, and now they're walking, the next day, they're walking back into Jerusalem. Okay? Now, now Jesus has a plan. He knows what he's going to do, and it's going to be to clear the temple. This wasn't a temper tantrum. It was a calculated act meant to teach something. On his way to do that, he passed a fig tree that caught his attention because it was full of leaves. According to Craig Keener in the IVP Bible Background Commentary, while it wasn't the season for figs, it wasn't the season for leaves either. You see, a fig tree that is full of leaves ought to have early figs. If it doesn't, that means the tree is going to be barren and will not produce any figs at all that year. Maybe it will next year, but we don't know. Thus, it was not unreasonable for Jesus to expect a leafy fig tree to have figs. When he saw that there weren't any, he knew that the tree was barren. Something about that struck a chord with him but what he had seen in the temple. The leaves advertised, hey, I have figs, but it didn't. The temple was supposed to be a place where people could worship God, find God, but its current state did not really allow for that. It, too, was barren. So he cursed the fig tree in the morning as they walked toward the temple. And in the evening, as they were leaving Jerusalem to go back to Bethany, the disciples were amazed to see that the tree Jesus had cursed had shriveled up. This is an object lesson for his disciples and for us. If a miracle is a head-scratcher, that just means we don't have all the background details but if we, we can do a little digging and find out its real purpose. Do you guys know that about the fig tree? The last uh, category I want to look at is foreshadowing the future. And I'm picking raising the dead here. Now, Jesus didn't raise just one person, but the most famous one is Lazarus. But he also raised a little girl from the dead. Kept that one secret, though. But he also, right in the middle of a funeral procession, uh, raised a young man... Uh, of, uh, from the dead during his funeral procession. So this one wasn't on the down low. So he had done that. But the Lazarus one was really what took the cake. This is near the end of his ministry. In fact, Jesus knows his death will come soon. Jerusalem has become a dangerous place for him now, so much so that when he receives word that his good friend Lazarus is sick, his disciples assumed that the reason he didn't go to see him was because the area was so dangerous now. But that was not the reason. He deliberately let his friend die so that he could foreshadow the future for his followers. They were going to need that, after all, when he would be killed on the cross. When he received word that Lazarus had died, he announced to his disciples that this was a good thing because it was going to allow him to do something that would strengthen their faith. It would foreshadow his own death and resurrection. Now, Lazarus' story did not just foreshadow Jesus' own death and resurrection, but also what awaits all of us as his followers. Though we will all die a physical death, we have the hope of resurrection in heaven. 
And this is the last great miracle that Jesus did. He's not recorded as doing any other miracles after raising Lazarus before he went to the cross. So this last great miracle that Jesus did is a sign that gives us that glimpse of glory. Now, if the band will come on back up while they're doing that, I will show a couple less. Okay, did I do that one? Skip that one. We love our superheroes because they have superpowers that they use for good and give us hope that good will win over evil, that things will be better in the end. But they're not real. Jesus is the ultimate superhero because he didn't just do really cool things. He conquered sin and death. He died and he came back to life. And he conquered the grave so that we can also do so through him. Since we uh, have that, what happened to my last page? Oh well. He is the last great superhero, and he is more than a superhero. I don't really want to call him a superhero. He goes beyond that. And he fulfills that in ways that our imagined superheroes cannot even begin to imagine. So, that's it. All righty.